0: So one of the yearly rhythms that we have had since I arrived here in North Carolina to be a part of the Emmaus community is that we take the month of September typically and we have been uh, revisiting and recentering ourselves around the vision and mission that we believe that God has given us to continue forward. Um, and there are a couple of ways that Emmaus expresses our vision and values as a community. One of them is by our, what we would call a mission statement that we basically uh, state in that what our value is as a church community. Um, This happened a few years ago when we were talking with a church planner, apostolic leader named Chris Venen, uh, who's planted all over the world uh, from South Africa, and he asked us a plain question, uh, simply, why does Emmaus exist? Especially if you're in the Bible Belt and there's a church on every corner why does Emmaus exist? And we began to talk with him about essentially why, what we felt God had called us to be and to do as a people. And uh, he kind of laid out the statement that, is on this, that will be on the screen behind us. And it's essentially our mission statement. It's on our website and everywhere. It's Emmaus exists as an authentic community, building family around the scriptures, and empowering every believer in their God-authored mission. And so we're going to take the next several weeks and really unpack that statement and what it means to us. So that's one of the ways when you're talking to your friends or people are saying, hey, what's your church about? Um, Just that statement itself. Emmaus exists as an authentic community, building family around the scriptures and empowering every believer in their God-authored mission. And that continues to be the forward thrust of what we're attempting to do and be as a church community. The other way that we express our vision and values is through our five values, um, which are mission, prayer, thinking, artistry, and I missed one, community. That's what we're talking about today, of all things. (laughs) Um, I just needed someone else to say it to be Community together. Um, So, um, we're going to take the next several weeks, so as I mentioned, and unpack our mission statement. Um, So, this week it's going to be church as authentic community. Um, Next week it'll be church building family around the scripture. And then on September 23rd, I want you to mark this and invite people, Um, specifically because on September 23rd, for those of you who are aware of the International Justice Mission, um, which basically is an organization that's globally helping stop sex trafficking and child slavery around the world. It's a global movement, um, and we, on the 23rd, are going to join with churches um, that are in their own buildings Holding uh, Freedom Sunday, and our friend Ben Alston, who presented to us last year um, the subject of biblical justice, is going to come again. He did a fantastic presentation. If you weren't here last year, listen to it. He's going to come again and again talk about God's heart for justice on the 23rd. So it's a really important Sunday. Last year, through a matching grant, we were able on one Sunday to, for the year, raise $33,000 to end sex trafficking in the world out of this small community. So uh, we were just dynamically blessed last year. We expect even more this year because we believe it's God's heart to do that. So come on the 23rd. Mark that on your calendar. And then the final installment for our Vision and Value series will be on September 30th, and we'll finish with looking at church as empowering every believer in their God-authored mission. So that's where we're going, um, and uh, for this next month, uh, really excited about the content that we get to share together. So for this morning, though, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. If you got it, again, say, got it, it. good, and and it'll be up on the screen as well, and we'll be looking at the subject at church as authentic community. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, remember now as we enter this, this is an ancient 2,000-year-old letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus While he was sitting in prison. And so this was his heart for the church uh, as he's thinking about it as the Lord's prisoner. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And let the church say, Amen. Wow. Packed little sentence here. Packed paragraph in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 has actually been called and named by some as the unity chapter of the Bible. Because there's so much here that speaks to the New Testament ideal of what it is to be a church community. And Paul calls us to actively protect and guard and participate in the unity of the Spirit In the church. And so he mentions a couple really important things just in verses 1 through 6 about what it means to be an authentic community. And two things in particular in verses 1 through 6 that are foundational regarding doing church correctly. The first involves verses 1 through 3, which is our character. Notice Paul lists out several things about community as it involves the character of those who are involved in community. Secondly, he talks about our convictions in verses 4 through 6. So our character and our convictions. And to the point of our character, Paul lifts up five Christian virtues or five community virtues that are to be exercised as you determine to do life in community with others as a people interconnectedly. And he points out that to do church right, to do community right, correctly we need to be humble we need to be gentle we need to be patient we need to bear with one another in love we need to make every effort effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace so if we're going to do life together it's going to require something out of us things like love and patience and forbearance and gentleness so paul says these are the character virtues of community This is what you're going to need if you're going to actually live out the Christian command and mandate that we would be one, as Jesus said, as the Father and the Spirit and Jesus the Son are one. If we're going to live that out, it's going to require these things of us. So just be ready. But secondly, if we're going to do community correctly, we have to be a community that shares convictions. And Paul keeps on saying, as a community, we are one in these ways. And so he lists out all these oneness things, verses 4 through 6. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is through all and in all. And amazing, glory to God. Um, so if we're going to have community, we can't just be a community that, that isn't based around a truth or a central ideal. Um, We are not a church that believes that we all have to agree on everything in doctrine and Christianity. So we call what we we call it opened and closed-handed issues. Um, We have some closed-handed issues, and that's where our convictions play in, where, where Paul says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one hope. So there are things that we have in common, and those things are important for us to do community Right? that there be some common convictions. But then, so those, those, we would call that orthodoxy. We hold that in a closed hand. That's, that's essentials. But in the open hand are the secondary issues that the church mostly divides over. The church mostly divides over not the one Lord, one baptism, one faith. They divide over women in ministry, communion, and how you view the Lord's Supper, baptism, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we're saying, those things are important, but we're not going to divide over those things. But we do have to have a center. And so the paradigm we've used and are continuing to use that was basically started by a couple of missiologists in Southern California, is that we look at a bounded set versus a centered set. The bounded set is the doctrines that build fences that say everyone's gotta be in this fence and you're either in or out based on these doctrinal fences. And so that keeps the church divided. I mean, churches will move down the street for the color of the carpeting, right? Or, you know, what version of the Bible? They'll split. They'll continue to be Protestants that protest and divide and protest and divide. And you keep dividing an already divided body until there's all these little clusters everywhere. Um, but, But the centered set is to essentially say this. Jesus is the center, One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. And we are a people that just say, Jesus is center, so we dig wells. And we say, we invite people to Jesus and to the well, and and we enjoy our oneness at the well. Rather than building fences to say who's in, who's out, we say dig wells and keep inviting people to the Lord Jesus and spend your time on what really matters. And so as a community, there are things that we need in character and conviction and once we have those two things in ideal then we can begin to live out this common call to community this unity of the body that's so beautiful and powerful and i would i would even go so far as to say you can't really be a christian and not be in community what the bible uses an illustration that the church is a body And what part of the body is Jesus? What? Be sure that you're sure. He's the head, right? I'm not the head. The Pope's not the head. Religious leaders aren't the head. Jesus is the head of his church. And every one of us then are members in connection with the head. If you cut my head off my body, everything dies. If a Christian believes that they can be a finger or an, arm or a hand in the body and just be connected to the head, they are wrong. You cannot be a part of a body unless you're connected to the other members. You can't love Jesus and hate his church. You can't love Jesus and not participate in his church. You cannot love Jesus and say, I don't love the bride that you purchased with your blood. Now is the bride of Christ, is the church perfect? No. Are you perfect? You're part of the problem, and so am I. And so The ideal that I want to put across this morning is it is essential that you live in the conviction that you must be part of authentic, raw, real community in order to follow Jesus in the way he commanded that we should follow him. Jesus did not come to start an organization. He came to call a people. Like Gabe mentioned this morning, church started when you walked in the room. This room is not church it's a community center. Or it's an art center. It's not a church. We don't even meet in a church. So us, we are church. We are a people, a body connected to Jesus. And the church says amen to that. So we're going to talk about how difficult this is to live out. <laughs> because one of the things that's pointed out in authentic community through the Apostle Paul about our character and our conviction, there's an issue with this. When you think about it, really, you only need to operate with this character. You can hold Orthodox Christianity and live without these character qualities that we're supposed to operate in with one another if you don't live in community. You don't need to be patient if you don't have any Christians in your life that are making you feel impatient. You don't have to be loving if there aren't any people that you're around enough to love. So you can come to church on Sunday, and a lot of you show up after 10, so you don't even hang out with anybody at the front end. You come in late, worship's already begun, maybe you grab a cup of coffee on the way in, maybe say a a cordial hi to somebody, like you would at a mall or a Starbucks if you're a friendly person. You walk in here, drink coffee, hear some music, I think our music's great, I love our music. So, man, I I would come to a church that had good coffee, pour-overs in the lobby, good music, and then a talk. And maybe you like the talks, maybe you don't. You get through that. I I finish saying what I'm gonna say. We eat and drink the Lord's Supper, so you feel good about that. Maybe you hang out in the lobby for a few minutes and then you get in your car and go home. That is not doing community. That is showing up to a Sunday morning, and almost anyone could get through that. It doesn't require Ephesians chapter four, verses two and three. You don't have to exhibit any of the things that Paul says for bearing together with each other in love, because you don't know anybody. You're not connected with anybody. You are just going to church. You're not being the church. So, but church is authentic, real relational community that Sunday morning really can't touch. I think Sundays are important, but Sundays are more like a team that huddles together and kind of reminds we remind each other about what we're about and how we're going to live, and we lift up the Lord, and we glorify the Lord. There's a lot of important things that happen on a Sunday, but community is probably not the, we don't do that best here in an hour and a half, or depending on how much I have to say, two hours. Um, I don't talk for two hours, but you know what I mean. Um, so, so we get together, and so, so often I think a lot of people, especially in the United States, think that they're actually doing community or being part of the church when they're actually just attending a Sunday morning gathering and I'm sorry guys that ain't good enough that's just not good enough and 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 the issue is is that we have been um conditioned as a culture to the sin I'm going to call it a sin of individualism since the enlightenment and postmodernism and and all of modern the modern world has been in place we have continued to become less dependent on one another because we don't live in villages like we once did or in tribes we don't live in a place where like i don't actually need you because i have google i don't need you to actually interact with me because i have an instagram account and i can interact with people so called on social media and feel like look at how many friends i've got i've got over a thousand friends no i don't those are people that i know that post pictures of themselves And we all just kind of think we're in this community, but it's a false sense of community. And and so the church has moved with culture to a place of of rugged individualism. And so rather than interdependence, body, we become independent and we put off the vibe that I live in a suburban neighborhood. I probably don't even know my neighbors. Uh, When I come home, I push the garage door opener, pull into my garage, shut the garage, go inside and hope nobody bothers me because I've been at work all day. And then some sociologists have said, we have become so isolated as a culture, basically they're saying that one of the social indicators of that is that we've moved from the front porch to the backyard. When I moved into my neighborhood, there was open spaces between me and my neighbor. It was just, you know, a southern backyard where it was like there was no fence. The day we moved in, our neighbor started building his fence. And I was like, really? This is how this is going to go, huh? And, and, and in, in most neighborhoods, people build fences so that they don't get bothered by the people in their neighborhood. And sociologists said, this is the way we're moving as a culture, and we're dealing with an epidemic in America because most Americans are chronically lonely. And because of all the media and the things that we can get to self-medicate and distract ourselves, we don't even realize the depth of our own loneliness God has not created you to be alone. One of the first things God said when he made a man, what, what was the first thing God said when he looked at the man? He's like, it's not good that this dude stay alone. And from then on, God out of community created a community. God out of family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the dance together their overflow of love created man and then woman and then children and then community and then family. And God said, that's the best way to exist. It is not good for man to be alone. And for some of us, we are in the false kind of idea that we're actually doing community because we show up to a Sunday morning. Bzz. wrong. Sunday morning is not community. I believe in Sunday morning. We'll keep doing Sunday morning, but there's so much more to following Jesus than going to church. Now that said, I've been reading this really interesting book, and I've quoted from it before, but it's, been, it's, almost, it's a prophetically poignant book written by a guy named Sky Jetani, and it's called Divine Commodity. And this is what he writes about the ideal of what God has for the church and some of the misnomers we have. So I just want to read a quote from Sky Jetney's book, Divine Commodity. Would encourage you to pick it up and read it. He says this the Holy Spirit inhabits human beings, not institutions. What may be needed is a fundamental rethinking of the church within the minds of the members, cultivating the imagination to conceive of the church as a relational community rather than an institutional organization, beginning on the smallest end of the scale. This means relearning, I love this, the lost art of friendship. We have lost the ability to know how to be friends. That's what church is. That's what discipleship is. Then he continues with this train of thought, writing, of our need for Christ-centered relationships with real people. The ancient Celtic Christians, I love this, believed cultivating these relationships was one of the ingredients of the Christian life. You hear many people talk about saying, if you want to follow Jesus, learn to be a good friend. Have friends. Be friendly. But the ancient Celtic Christians said, that's the key to the Christian life is friendship. They called everyone to have what they called an anamkara, a soul friend. This was a spiritual mother or father to guide you in the faith or appear to walk beside you on the path of sanctification. This person, now listen to this, was a vessel of God's Spirit welcomed into the closets of your soul to bring light and cleansing. Let's think about that phrase for a second. People that you're inviting into those deep, sacred places and saying, bring light and cleansing to my soul, friend. An old Puritan prayer describes these friendships as God's hands and fingers taking hold of me. The Celts believed a Christian... Without a soul friend was like a body without a head. Now would you describe your experience in the church as an experience of soul friendship where you invite people into the closets of your soul to bring light and cleansing to those dark shadowy places of your life. That is the ideal that we are aiming for for every man, woman, and child. That in Jesus you would have soul friendship. To boil it down to its basics, that is our desire as a church. We want you to have authentic community because we think so many of the things that plague humanity, the addictions, the lonelinesses, and the social ills that we're dealing with could be best handled, not in the counselor's office, I apologize to my professional counselors, but in the living room with friends. There is something about sitting around a fire with some men and women that you trust And just sharing laughs and food and joy and drink and conversation in a way that you're able to say, I am building relational capital with people who are gonna carry me through the dark nights of my soul. People who I will celebrate with, people that I will enjoy being alive with, people that will help me follow and know the Lord Jesus. And you know, for me, my journey with the church began this way. I'm very grateful that I didn't get saved into an institution. I got saved into a family. And, and just by accident, when I was 17 years old, after I became a Christian, I just, by God's Spirit leading me, I just started going to a drug recovery um, uh, Bible study that our church held. I wasn't even addicted to anything. But somehow I was like, those are the kind of people I want to hang out with. So, and I remember I heard a pastor say that, that churches need to be more like AA meetings if they want to really get it right, right? I don't know if you've ever been to an AA meeting. I have because I had a broken childhood. That's another story. Um, but so I become a follower of Jesus 17, and I show up to this, this drug rehabilitation uh, program for, at, that our church had, and it was in that environment that I learned how to follow Jesus. Because these people were authentic. They had no secrets. They were like, I'm here because I'm jacked up. And they, they were honest. They were confessing Christians. Not just confessing they were Christians. They were confessing, man, I'm stumbling. I'm struggling. I, I have problems. And, and we used to get together in these little circles. And I remember it was in those circles that I learned about Jesus and how to read the Bible and how to pray, how to talk honest, how to, how to relate to real people about a real God. There was no pretension up in that place. It was so freeing. I mean, I still, when I think about the people, when I was 17, the friendships I made, John and Sharon Gilbert, and, and Aaron and Jamie Lacey, and, and some of the young people my age, we started going, not because we were on drugs, but we're like, this is church, y'all. Well, I remember we used to stand around, the whole big group of us, and hold hands and sing songs together. We would eat and drink the Lord's Supper in a circle, and we'd look at each other in the eye. And man, I didn't know any better. I was like, this, this just must be what Christianity is. And then <laughs> I made the mistake... Well, maybe it wasn't a mistake, but sometimes I wonder of letting my church hire me to be a pastor and it ruined all the fun. (laughs) Then I was like, oh gosh, like I've got to be kind of like the big pastor guy. And so then I got to be the guy with all the answers. And so I got to act like I got a big S on my shirt. And I'm like, yeah, come to me if you need help. I am the shepherd wearing my cape. Really, still needing a lot of discipleship and friendship. And somewhere in the course of that, the next 15 years of my life, my, my soul friendships began to dry up because I didn't think I could be authentic. And you can ask my wife about 15 years in, I just hit a wall. And I'm like, I don't have any real friends. I can't do this anymore. So I quit. Turning my resignation, I said, I got to find like real authentic Christianity. I can't do the church institution anymore. So for two years, I just went and sold some insurance. I was like, i I guess that's what pastors do, you know, you sell cars or insurance, but you don't know what else to do, I'm good at talking to people, so that's what I did for two years, and in that two-year journey, I felt the Lord nudging me back into the church and as a leader, but I came in reluctantly like a cat going into water, Out claws out, no, I don't know, I can't do this, I can't live the next several years of my life like I lived the first 15, I I don't know about this, so I determined that if I'm going back, it's going to be raw, real, and honest Christianity, or I ain't even going, y'all. I'll, I'll, I'll sit in a living room with some people I trust and be like, let's just talk and pray and open the Bible. And so, so that to say, I still believe in the church, but I believe in it more like Paul talked about it. And like the soul friendship, the Celt said, a soul or a Christian without a soul friend is like a body without a head. And really, that's what Paul said. You're detached from the head if you're detached from body, soul friendship. And that would be my prayer for each of us. It's got to be authentic or it ain't even worth really doing because it's just pretension and hypocrisy. Now, I want to res- spend really the remainder of the time that I have with you this morning just talking about um, some of what it might mean practically to be authentic community as opposed to just going to church. Um, because this going to church uh, method of Christianity, just showing up to a gathering, um, is not the fairest representation of the roots of our movement. I mean, if you want to know what the church is about, I was, I was at the barbershop yesterday with a couple of, of Brian Gower and James and uh, Chris Torado and Annette, and uh, we were having a conversation at the barbershop with the community leaders about institutions and, and stuff like that, and, and uh, uh, True, the guy running it, he's, he's come here before, he said, he said, so Brian, like, as a, as a pastor, um, how do you view the church? Is the church able to turn the corner away from an institution with rules that don't actually connect to the heart um, because you know, so much of the institutional church is cold um, and, and kind of off her. And I remember you know, when I was trained in ministry school, one of the, the lines that used to be said, if you want to learn anything from church history, just learn that you can't learn from church history. And I had a friend, he told me, Brian, the first two, 300 years of church history are the best. After that, it gets real wacky because it got political and it got institutionalized. And that's where we went off the rails. But when you go back to the roots of our movement, if you want to know what Christianity is about, go to the first several chapters of the book of Acts. Chapter one, two, three, and four. Read the book of Acts. Read the life of Jesus. When Jesus came, he did not build a building or start a denomination. He started a revolution through relationships. He was like, you and you and you, let's come come, just follow me, we're gonna do life together. You will sleep where I sleep, you'll eat what I eat, we'll be together for the next three years until I'm gone, and then you can start a community. So the first church was a living room prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit came. That's what I'm talking about. I'm like, That's the roots of our movement. A living room prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit came. And they, they had no idea what they were doing. Their leader had just gone, but he said, I put my spirit in you. And my spirit will come, and the church will begin from that place, and listen to how the church proceeded forward as an authentic community. Acts chapter two well it'll be up on the screen, but listen to what our movement started like. The church really was, as they met in homes and dinner tables and uh, everyday life, meeting together. Acts 242 to47 says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, there's a whole other conversation we could have about what the breaking of bread was, but it probably wasn't the small cup and the little piece of bread that we get on Sunday morning. The the little, like, you know, pellet food. It was a full-blown meal that included celebrating Jesus. Isn't that radical? Have people at your dinner table and celebrate Jesus as you do. So they continued... With teaching, fellowship, authentic fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So there was the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. All the believers were together. Just that phrase there. And they had everything in common. They were just sharing with each other. I have more for you're not enough. Verse 45, they sold property. They started getting radical and open-handed generosity. Sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need Every day, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number, not through clever clever marketing strategies or being the coolest church on the block. The Lord added to their church daily those who should be saved. They didn't have a marketing strategy or a building or anything cool or even a church name. There was just like this rumor going around. There's this family, this nucleus family that started. Spirit came, and then after Spirit came, they were doing signs and wonders. They were eating together. They were with glad and sincere hearts. People were selling their stuff. You know the gospel is penetrated When people mortgage their house, and liquidate their assets to say, there are hungry people, there are needy people in our church, and how can I live in this big old fat stinking house in the, in the suburbs while my brothers and sisters aren't doing well? No, that ain't right. I can't have too much when they don't have enough. And so you have this like radical movement. You're like, what is happening here? And everyone's like, man, there's a new story being told. There's a new birth of a movement happening because there's these people that get together every day And and they eat in each other's homes, and they share what they got, and they gather at the temple courts, and they're at each other's dinner tables, and they are actually doing life together. And it's producing the kind of movement that the Lord just kept adding more. The Lord's like, I trust you with people. So I'm going to take this person, I'm going to add them to you, because you'll just absorb them like a family would. I was listening to a really great fascinating talk by a pastor who's now 83 years old. I quote him all the time, Eugene Peterson. Shout out to Eugene. Um, and he was talking about the complexity of the Trinity and how so many illustrations have been used. Some of them were kind of hokey. you are like, really? We're going to use ice and water and steam to illustrate God? Really? I mean, is that the best we got? Or an egg or something crazy like that? And so he started talking about this ancient monk who basically talked about the Trinity, the triune God, in the form of a dance. In the sense that when we see Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates, he, he, he comes together in his oneness. And, and it's almost like there's this beautiful like symmetry between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they start to create out of their overflow of love. And he talked about the Trinity or God as a, as a community that dances. And, uh, and the idea that, that when you come into God, it's almost like he's just inviting you into the dance of the Godhead. So when God made you, he made you for a community because he's living in it in himself. And so Jesus says a radical prayer like, Father, would they, could you make them, make them one like we are? You know the dance we enjoy, Father, Son, Spirit, intertangled with one another. You can't tell where one stops and one ends. God's saying every time someone comes into the church, they get sucked into God. And they get sucked into a family. They get, they get brought into a communal, relational thing with God and people, and it's this beautiful, magnificent, there is nothing like the, a real church in the world. You won't find that anywhere. It's community with God infused into it. It's God inviting us, essentially, into himself. And if you do a, a study of the New Testament, you'll find something very interesting. Do this sometime, I dare you, or just Google it, that'll be easy for you, um, But there are 59 times in the New Testament, as it concerns how we relate to each other, 59 times the word or the the phrase one another is used. Such as love one another, forgive one another, be at peace with one another, be patient with one another, be kind to one another, be devoted to one another, serve one another. And I'm going to say the most obvious thing in the room in order for us to obey the New Testament of one anothering, We have got to be together. you got to show up to stuff where people are. You cannot live with your blinds closed, inside your house watching Netflix, and expect one-anothering to happen. You've got to show up when we say, hey, we're getting together. Come. Well, I'm an introvert. Come. You're commanded to one another. You're commanded to this one-anothering, and you can't do that unless you're showing up to stuff where people are. And that is one of the biggest blocks to authentic community is just we're not together. We don't know how to do life together, to be devoted to one another, and we are addicted to our individualism. I read a, I'm reading another book. Um, I've got like four started. My wife's one of those that she starts a book and she finishes it and then starts another one. I'm like ordering books on Amazon. She's like, Really? You haven't even finished the three. got bookmarks. And so my nightstand's got five books on it, and they're halfway through them. That to say, I am reading another book by a guy named Rabbi Evan Moffick. And his book is called The Happiness Prayer. It's a very fascinating book. He's a Jewish uh, rabbi, obviously. um, And he talks about this ancient Jewish prayer called Alu Devarim, which just means, Alu Devarim, just means these are the words. And this is a 2,000-year-old prayer that the Jews pray, and I'm going to read the paraphrased version that's in his book, translated from Hebrew. But I want you to notice in this prayer, they believe that this prayer was the rule. These 10 lines are the rule to, the hap, to happiness in this life and in the world to come. And so much of it is communal. So this is the alu devarim. The prayer goes this way. Honor those who gave you life. Be kind. Keep learning. Invite others into your life. Be there when others need you. Celebrate good times. Support yourself and others during times of loss. Pray with intention. Forgive. Look inside and commit. Now, to this phrase, of the ten, what a beautiful prayer, powerful prayer. And, and Rabbi Evan Moffick, he prays it every day. And they call him the happy rabbi because... <laughs> He's just, he's living into the truth of this ancient prayer. But to this phrase, invite others into your life, Rabbi Evan Moffick says this. In learning about ourselves, we discover that we cannot fully become ourselves all alone. We need other people. We need to invite them into our lives. Modern psychology has actually discovered this. Um, We've known this for a long time if we were reading our Bibles. Um, But it's it's a phenomenon they call mirroring which essentially says that you cannot fully, tr- truly know yourself until you see yourself through the eyes of another. In other words, you can't even be fully realized in who you are apart from relationships with other people. And when I say relationships with, an, with other people, obviously, I- I'm hoping you know, I don't mean you know people's names. I'm like, you know these people, they know you. And they can, they can get to that point where... Um, politeness in the degree that we do it when we're just being social animals that are just trying to keep kind of, like everything's nice and friendly, but no confrontation. Do you have friends like that when you cross the line with them and you're like, we've crossed the line. Now I can say, bro, like that is wrong. And they can can push back and you can have hard conversations. They can come to you and be like, dude, I have blown it. I am a mess. And when you have those kind of friendships, then you know what that's like. And that's deep stuff. That's when you've entered into the deep end. And that's the kind of thing that psychology is saying. And that's the kind of thing that the Bible is saying, that in one anothering, we have to know and be known. We We have to go into these relationships that break past just these social niceties, but that we're actually real and authentic in our lives with one another. And, and scripture continues to press this idea of, uh, of this one anothering, this idea of that we are a community because the terms that are used to even describe the church is we're members of a body, we're living stones in God's temple, and we are part of a new family. Now all that to say, I just want to boil authentic community down to one practice. We'll start here. And I need to get better at this. I, I, to, I was telling the elders, like I'm having an existential crisis because I'm so convicted about my need to press in harder in authentic community. So I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. But the one word I would just put before you as a practice is hospitality. The Bible says, Romans 12, verse 13, Rabbi Paul simply says this, practice hospitality. This word hospitality is Philozenia, which means loving the stranger. Now, the Jewish sages had a statement, very clever proverb, that says that every home should have a door on each of its four sides to make it easy for your neighbors to access your house. I mean, I had a friend who was a pastor. I couldn't believe he said it to our staff. He said, you know, I don't really like people. I'm like, wrong business, bro. <laughs> like, go do something else. He goes, I, I kind of wish I could live in a house that had a drawbridge and a moat with alligators in it. And I was like, really? <laughs> wow, repent. <laughs> but the idea that we would say about our own lives, like, I, I, I really desire my My, my home to be open, my life to be open. Um, and hospitality, this loving the stranger, um, is actually a practice of ancient Judaism. And I, I know that I'm talking about Judaism a lot um, and because I, I'm, I'm constantly reminded that Christianity is a branch of Judaism, right? So, so our father Abraham began this movement and we are carrying forth that movement with Jesus at the center. But the Jews got a lot of things right because God was guiding this nation. So don't you get arrogant. Paul said, don't you boast branches against the tree because one branch got taken out so that you could be grafted in. So we are a movement out of what God did through the Jewish nation that extended to all people. The Jews have a, once a year, they celebrate to this day, a celebration called Sukkot. And Sukkot is what you might be familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And it is an eight-day camping trip where the Jews will build these little lean-to huts called sukkahs. And so this is like Boy Scout stuff. You're building your own uh, tent or like little little shelter. And for eight days, you are in the elements with your community, and you strip your life of everything and, and go down to the basics. And it's a commemoration of the 40 years God saw his people through the wilderness. And so for eight days, you're dependent on God and one another, and you've got not your car, not your refrigerator, not your nice furniture, it's just you in this little lean to, and you would think, especially for you who don't like camping, this would be miserable. You could think all the reasons you wouldn't want to camp with people for eight days. But this is one of the feasts, the only feast actually, that the Jews actually, they use a Hebrew word which just says it's a time of happiness. For eight days, they learned to be family and community, stripped of everything that divides us. One of the biggest divides in the church is socioeconomic. There's racial divide, there's socioeconomic divide, and those two are probably the two biggest things that keeps us away from each other. Either I don't understand the other, or they have more money, they live on the other side of the tracks, so I am ashamed of what little I have, and so we can't interact with each other. But the rabbis say the two most beautiful things about Sukkot and living in a sukkah for eight days are number one, freedom from materialism. Listen to this comment from a rabbi. The sukkah is a flimsy hut furnished with little more than plastic chairs and foam mattresses. So you can't brag about your new couch. What better place could there be to remind others that true happiness comes not from all the stuff that we have, but from what we still have when stripped of all of our stuff. And for the eight days of Sukkah, you know what book of the Bible they read? Ecclesiastes. Just to remind us that it ain't gonna be found in any of this. And, And it's amazing how freeing it is when you just take away all the stuff that you think makes you human. And say, here we are in this little, there's nothing fancy about the hut I'm in, but hey, I'm here the two joys about this feast, this happy time, is number one, freedom from materialism. To the rabbi say, the joy of having people in our lives. Now, I want to speak to this because I think hospitality is very important. And if you're not practicing, there are probably some reasons for this. One of the reasons we don't practice hospitality is maybe we don't have the money to, we think. We don't have the kind of house that we would want to invite people to. Or we don't feel like we have a family that has it all together. There are things that, that are barriers to hospitality. But during this eight-day camping trip, Unlike some of you, I mean, some of you, if if I want to come to your house, this is going to be booked out a year ahead of time so that you got time to get the floor cleaned, steam cleaned so that you can get the yard looking spick and span so that you can go purchase all the best groceries and get a bunch of recipes and invite me in to a fake environment. And I mean, I appreciate nice houses and nice food, but listen, if you're going to maintain that, it's that's so expensive and exhausting. You won't be able to live in rhythms of hospitality. But when you're out camping, a camping meal is hot dogs and chili and marshmallows unless you go with Brian Gower who will cook you an elaborate meal outside. But there's something about sitting around a campfire or right outside your sukkah and just being like, it's just us. There's hot dogs. There's marshmallows. And we're just going to sit around. We're going to play cards. We're going to tell stories. We're going to swat away mosquitoes. We're we're just going to be people. We're going to be human. We're gonna strip away all the things that keep us from each other. All the the shame and socioeconomic and racial divides and the things we don't understand about each other and we're stripped down to raw humanity. It's just us in what God made for eight days. We're just doing life together. So the Jews, they call that the happy times. It's like they all look forward to their, what if, what if, what if, instead of going on the elaborate vacations you normally do with your family, I don't, but maybe some of you do, you said, you know what, forget that. I got, I got some time off work. One week out of every year, our family's gonna be stoked on it because we're gonna go on a camping trip with our community. We're just, for seven days, eight days, we're just gonna be like, we're just gonna be out here being people together. We're gonna swim, we're gonna laugh, we're gonna know each other, we're gonna tell stories, we're gonna get involved, we're gonna read scripture, we're gonna sing some songs. We're gonna just for eight days do this. That, see, hospitality is not about what you have to give, but it's the ability to share your life with others, to invite people into your life. I had a friend, the most, one of the most hosp- hospitable people I know lived in a double-wide trailer in Gold Hill, Oregon. He had some of the wealthiest people in our church over to his double-wide trailer. And I'm like, you know what? This guy is a full-on rock star. And he had goodwill furniture, not much food. He gave everything he had, but he's like, listen, this isn't about you being impressed with anything I got. I don't have a big screen TV. I don't have a nice house, but you're invited into my apartment, into my double wide trailer, and I'll serve you what I have, the simple food I have. We'll sit on the couch. You know, I had so much fun at that guy's house, and I was amazed at the the, the variety of people he would invite over. It's like every tribe and tongue would be at his house. I'm like, there are people in our church that never have anyone over and they got way more square footage than this brother, but he is killing everybody in hospitality. See, hospitality is a mindset. It's to say, you are invited into my life and I'm gonna invite myself into your life. I'm gonna be Jesus with Zacchaeus, so I'm coming to your house. I hope you're cool with that because I'm coming. Like, and I might bring my friends with me. We're coming. We're gonna do life together in a doable, authentic way. And and I believe that true community begins with hospitality. And from there, as you invite people in, we begin to know each other. And we determine to fight against the social ills of individualism and greed and loneliness and all of the diseases that are affecting society that a wealthy, affluent society, we are plagued with so much mental illness and so much depression, and I'm not saying all of that can be explained simply by hospitality, but I'm saying there's probably a lot that could be done if we would live in community and tribe, if we would live in hospitality. So much of what people are dealing with on their own would be handled if we would do life together and we would finally be able to tell the truth about where we're living in. Now, I know that takes time, but brothers and sisters, that is the course for Emmaus, that's, that is the course we're on, and we don't do it all right, and we're still figuring this thing out, but, but I'm continuing to pull in whoever is smart and thinks this way and is willing to open up their life and say, let us conspire to do better in hospitality together as a church community. So literally, everyone that comes here feels like, man, I got invited to so many houses for dinner, and I can't keep all these dinner invitations. Like I got to go to work, like, but like you feel overwhelmed with all the kindness that's just being dumped out on you. Here is my goal and my prayer for every man, woman, and child to live in authentic community and it is these four things. That you would love and be loved. That you would serve and be served. That you would know and be known and that you would celebrate and be celebrated. That you would live in the kind of authenticity that people feel like they just joined a family. See I wish people wouldn't even call it church. I wish they would just say, man, I'm just going to this thing on Sunday with a bunch of family. You know this big family reunion every Sunday? Yeah, and then a bunch of times during the week, small clusters of coffee shop gatherings and lunch gatherings and men and women just getting together and going to lakes and having cookouts and just doing life together. And if these things aren't happening in your life, if if you don't know and are known, if you don't love and are loved, if you aren't serving and are served, if you aren't celebrated and aren't celebrating, we are seeking to change that about your reality. Sign up today. If If you've been in a maze for any amount of time and you're not in a community group, repent, change that. There are eight opportunities to sign up. My prayer, I prayed this morning, God, overfill these community groups so we are forced to start more. That there aren't houses big enough to contain all the people that are like, I want to be in family. I want to know and be known. I want to serve and be served. I want to love and be loved. I want to celebrate and be celebrated. I want to get invited to parties. I want to be there when people need love and friendship and kindness and when they have babies and when they get married. I just want to be, I want to be in. Sign up for one of the eight community groups. And then practice regular rhythms of inviting yourself into other people's lives and inviting them into yours. Don't eat lunch alone. Have coffee with people. Invite them over Do life together. Stretch yourself to be involved with people. And then show up, doggone it, when you get invited to stuff. I get so frustrated as a human being with people that say, Man, I'm so lonely. Like, I I just, I'm so depressed. And I'm like, We invite you to stuff all the time and you just don't come. Like, if you're living alone, it's, it's a mutual problem here. Either we're not inviting enough or you just don't show up. And so we're, we're continuing to try to strive to have spaces where everybody's invited. Bring your family, bring your kids, bring everybody. We're gonna eat, we're gonna do life together. Show up to that stuff. And then repent of actions and attitudes that are keeping you out of community. The most famous excuse is I'm too busy. That's the funniest thing. Because I think I know people the people that tell me this sometimes, I'm like, I know people that are way busier than you because I know them and they are in community. It's a lame, weak sauce excuse. It's not, you make time for the things that are important to you. There are things you will bend over backwards to be at and then you say, well, I can't be in community, I can't do this. I'm like, Look, I would love to just see what your daytimer looks like. Are you really that busy? And if you are that busy, are you really that healthy? And if you, if you haven't prioritized your life from community at the center and then everything else falling into that, then you might need to rethink your schedule and your priorities. I know that's a challenge for some of us. But it's a biblical mandate, guys. Like It is, it is the truest sense of following Jesus. And so to end, I just want to refer back to that Celtic Christian saying again, a Christian without a soul friend. Is like a body without a head. Let's determine to be a community of soul friends. Amen? Let's stand together.